We're in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning, and we're looking at verses 3 and 4. I'm going to also read verses 1 and 2 that were covered last week in the um, uh, introduction to the book. And full disclosure here as I begin, some of you know this, but uh, one week ago tonight, I was sitting in the living room at home talking to my dad. Uh, my wife and I uh, moved back out here, as, as you all know, uh, six, seven months ago to be with him and my mom, who are in uh, failing health. Well, the next morning, he, he couldn't get out of bed. And on Tuesday, we had hospice care at the house. And uh, then Thursday morning, he couldn't get out of the hospital bed. And then last night, about 8 o'clock, we got him settled into a hospice house over on Valley View in Whittier. Uh, they're between Broadway and Telegraph. It's the same facility to which my brother was taken for his last days nine years ago. So the reason that uh, we're grateful to be there is because we know what a, a wonderful facility it is and the great care that, uh, that, that people receive. So um, anyway... Uh, you may ask, well, how come you're not sitting with your dad this morning? And the reason is because I'm here to proclaim the word of our Heavenly Father. Uh, all flesh is like grass and the flower thereof, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And so I'm, I'm here today to proclaim that word to you. And uh, I, I said to Kenny, I, I I had thoughts on the way over of, of flipping things around and beginning this morning with theology and then moving to doxology, uh, starting with the preaching and ending with the singing. And, uh, but then I thought, as I was coming across the parking lot, I thought, you know what, it would be good for me just to sit in here and let these words wash over my own soul. And so you ministered to me as uh, we sang together, and I'm grateful um, so Ken, Kenny asked if, if, if you could all pray for me, and I said that, yeah, I'd, I'd appreciate that, but really um, what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, Jesus, the, that fellow came to Jesus and said, man, come, come to my house because my daughter, she's not well. And he said, well, you know what, you don't need me to go. Just take off because she's better. And so I, I don't need to be in this room for, for you all to pray for me. I'm, I'm going to preach. And then I'm going to slip out as you all sing the last song. And, and Kenny has said at that point, um, or I asked him rather at that point if, if, if you'd all pray for me, but pray for my dad as he's, he's in the act of crossing the river right now. And um, we, we were big backpackers. And there, there was the uh, unpenetrable peak, Sawtooth, which is up out of Mineral King on the western side of the Sierra. We, we tried it once and failed miserably. And, um, but I said to him, uh, last night I said, Dad, we're climbing Sawtooth, but this time we're going to make it. So I'm going to get back over there and continue to encourage him. Um, so just pray for us as we make this final ascent, as it were. Well, let's stand as I read these words for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. Thus far, God's word. You may be seated. I used to work for a fellow who uh, is a wordsmith. That is to say, he loves words. Uh, Behind his desk, he had the box set, two-volume, Oxford Dictionary of the English Language, complete with the little drawer in the bottom that you could pull out. And uh, uh, there was a magnifying glass inside so you could see the words on the page. The, the font type was, was so small. If he couldn't find the right word in there to make the point he was uh, after, he would construct a word. And so he would choose a root that was appropriate to uh, the idea and then add a prefix or a suffix as appropriate. I uh, remember one day uh, walking by the desk of his assistant. She too had a giant dictionary on her desk that she could use to find out what some of these words actually mean or how to spell the words if, if she had a question. That big old dictionary was plopped open on her desk, and so I stopped and I asked her what what she was looking up, and she said, well, he's been using the word inculcate quite a bit lately, and I just want to know exactly what it means. And so I stopped and I looked with her, and we found that it comes from the Latin inculcare, which means to pound down, more more literally to pound down with your heel. So I looked up the word uh, about 10 days ago and found that it's often associated, inculcate, with teaching, which makes sense uh, because I think most, if not all of us, have been students and you know how teachers work at inculcating principles and formulas into your brain. And when I I read that, uh, I remembered my eighth grade math teacher, Mr. Cope, Dale Cope, at East Whittier Junior High. And he was uh, fond to rehearse things like, every whole number is always over one. Every whole number is always over one. And then there was A times the quantity of B plus C equals A times B plus A times C. And then he'd go and he'd climb on top of a desk and, and he would stand. And you got it. Cope had a beard and a coat and tie. He was old school. And uh, there he'd be in his slacks and his Sunday school shoes, you know. And he'd stand on top of the desk and he'd say, when you're dividing fractions, remember, you divide the bottom number into the top. (laughs) So, you know, my mind's going in this way and I'm thinking about my college football coach and uh, how anytime a guy would break into the open field with the ball, he'd cry out, you Sammy Sideline! I mean, I don't know how many times I think it was pounded into my brain. You know, you take the ball, you run to the sideline, and you use it as a line of defense as you uh, run down the field. Or any time a guy was thrown the ball and dropped it, he would cry out, catch the ball, that's why we throw it to you. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Then every Friday, we'd come out for special teams practice, and, and he would regularly say, special teams 
win games. And I heard that uh, many times. Well, if Peter is working at inculcating his readers with a single point in this letter, it's this. God's people have everything necessary to live a godly life. Everything. Everything. Necessary. Maybe not all that you want, but everything that's necessary for you, God has provided. To live a godly life. Because that's what that phrase, life and godliness, means. And it's not found, or rather, it's found in the knowledge of Jesus. Not this informational knowledge about him, but a relational knowledge of him. And so, like a kid being handed a broom handle, you know, and being put in front of a pinata, Peter just starts whacking away at this point by showing his readers how the knowledge of Jesus um, strengthens and sanctifies and sustains his readers for today, leading him to conclude, even at the end of the letter, right, right at the very end of the letter, therefore grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. While the promises of Jesus lend this, this, uh, this perspective, um, um, this hope, uh, patience for the reader, causing the apostle to say confidently, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Chapter 3, verse 13. So, there is nothing of any greater value in this life than this supremely important point. Why is that? Because the knowledge of Jesus and his promises are, are part and parcel, the knowledge of God. There, there's no greater thing than knowing God. No greater thing whatsoever. Those of you who were um, uh, around in the 70s will remember uh, Jim Packer's book, Knowing God. It just broke onto the scene uh, with great force. And early on in that book, uh, Packer says this, he says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God, John 17, 3. What's the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God, Jeremiah 9, 23. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself, Hosea 6.6. 6. Packer concludes, once you have become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Well, if there's nothing greater in life than knowing God, you can be sure that there are those who want to whack away, want to chip away at it, want to assail it want to dismantle it. <clears throat> so in chapter 2, Peter writes that these persons have in their very heart a greed. They've been trained in greed, chapter 2, verse 14, so that by that greed they will exp 
exploit you. They want you. And they do that in a couple of ways. They do that by their false words, chapter 2, verse 3. And they do that by way of sensuality, and we'll take a look at that uh, in a bit more detail uh, toward the end of the talk here. So, uh, so what a morning we have before us. In just a matter of minutes, you can walk away with the assurance that everything you need to grow a godly life is found in the knowledge of God. And that everything you need to guard that life, that is to maintain its integrity and, and, and to hold, us, hold it fast against those who would uh, try to take it away from you is found in the promises of that same one. And that's great news, especially if you are hounded by guilt and shame <laughs> and you don't know what to do about it. And these are especially great words because they come off the pen of somebody who could identify with you or with whom you can identify. Jesus at his greatest Hour of need was denied, not once, but three times, and profanely by Peter himself. Only to be wonderfully reconciled at Jesus' invitation in John chapter 21. So you're in good company today. Great hope before us. Now, none of this was... um, a foreign to Peter's audience. Uh, interestingly, this is all just uh, by way of reminder. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, um, I intend to remind you of what you already know. In the next verse, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. A couple of verses later, so that after my departure, after I'm dead, you may be able at any time to recall these things. In fact, Peter tells us outright here in uh, the second letter that the purpose of it and the first one was to help people remember, to stir up their memories in the knowledge of Jesus by way of the Bible. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we'll look at those uh, a little later on as well. And the reason that Peter is passionately incessant about this, listen to this, the reason he is passionately incessant incessant about this is because it's true. It's all true. Everything he's saying is true. Listen to him, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, when uh, uh, Jesus incarnate was transfigured before Peter's eyes up there on the Mount of Olives. And not just Peter, that's why he's, he, he says we John was there too. So John says at the beginning of his first letter, uh, you know, we heard him, we saw him, we, we looked at him, we touched him with our hands, and what we have seen and heard, we, we're proclaiming to you. Uh, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. They believed it because they were witnesses to it. Sometimes we talk about witnessing for Jesus, and I think we all understand those of us that have grown up in the church, what that means. 
But the fact of the matter is we've witnessed nothing. The veracity of our faith stands on the integrity of the apostolic witness. They saw it. And it happened. And it's true. And that's why Peter is so passionate about what he is proclaiming through this letter. So to make sure his listeners uh, hear it, he, he starts... Second uh, Peter here with this kind of fresh uh, sit up and take notice sort of way. So instead, instead of opening his letter according to the usual pattern of the day, which would be identifying uh, himself as the author and then acknowledging the audience and then moving into this offering of a, of a greeting and then a thanksgiving, he dispenses with the thanksgiving altogether and <clears throat> he jumps into the body of this letter with, with the grammatical volume and abruptness of the opening few notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, right? You go from silence to da 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 Everything necessary for life and godliness is to be found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Bum, 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 bum. So he has him right there from the outset. And then he develops uh, this in three points. In fact, some have identified these opening verses as a mini-sermon. Take a look at the end of verse number three. This knowledge has been given by him who called us. So Jesus took the initiative. The relationship is really, uh, we're the beneficiaries. He's the benefactor. He's the one by whom it's all kicked off. And it's not just any invitation. It's a privileged invitation. The the word there bespeaks an imperial gift, uh, royalty, something official, something abundant. So I'm having lunch a few weeks ago with a buddy of mine, and he's uh, telling us about this extended holiday he recently enjoyed at a chateau in the south of France that belongs to one of his wealthy clients. And concerning this visit, um, he, he was very clear. It was far beyond anything he could have afforded for himself. I mean, it was way, way beyond his range. He couldn't have afforded the location, Provence, double-gated security, uh, uh, guard on duty all the time. He could not have afforded anything in the chateau. He's telling me about this, and one thing in particular he mentioned was uh, uh, upon his arrival, he, he was told, if you stay in Sergei's chateau, you drink Sergei's wine. And he was handed a key to the wine cellar. And so he said, every night I went downstairs and I pulled out a bottle that was uh, you know, appropriate uh, to, the, to the meal, always a premium wine. And he said, one night, we had a $900 bottle of wine. No charge to himself. Now, here's the deal, friends. This guy's just like you and me. He lives in La Habra. He goes to Grace. He's just a regular Joe. But he was treated far better by Sergei than he could have treated himself. And the only reason God's people, the only reason we have everything that is necessary to live a godly life is because Jesus has invited us into that relationship. 
to, to enjoy that kind of life. My friend, you got a $900 cup of wine. You and I get the priceless cup of the new covenant. That privileged and personal knowledge should lead to a life of worship, a worshipful life, because that's what, that's what the word godliness means there in uh, verse number three. If you took it and broke it down, it means good worship. It reminds me of Romans chapter 12, where Paul basically says that all of life is an act of worship. So according to this verse, there's no excuse for failing to live a godly life. Everything that we need, we have in the knowledge of Jesus. A, a, a life of worship should nat- naturally or supernaturally flow out of that kind of knowledge. Uh, Dick Lucas, who was the pastor at St. Helens in London for 35 storied years, uh, who celebrated his 91st birthday just uh, uh, a week ago yesterday, still active, filling pulpits throughout the UK. He said about this verse, we can't blame God for not making us godly enough or not making his will clear enough for we already have everything we need. And then Lucas says this, merely by being Christians, we're in touch with everything that we need to live a godly life. A godly, worshipful life, the kind of life that God expects of his people in total is the knowledge of Jesus. That's it. Not Jesus plus something else. Not Jesus plus uh, prosperity. You know, as seen on TV. Uh, not Jesus plus uh, prophecy, that is some extra biblical word from God. Not Jesus plus pilgrimage. There's a, there's a city over in Europe to which you can go this year. And if you go there and walk through four specific doors that are located in four ancient churches... Uh, you're supposed to receive an extraordinary pathway to salvation. These doors are only opened up once every century. In fact, Nancy and I were there in 99, and these doors were all open. But, but, but you, you, by doing this, you get this extraordinary pathway to salvation. It's basically a reduced amount of punishment for your sin after you die. And the ironic thing is, it's a church that was founded by Peter himself. And it, it, Peter would say to this, no, no, that's not the case. All, you don't have to walk through any doors. All you need is the knowledge of Jesus. So, everything necessary for a godly life, a worshipful life, is found in the knowledge of Christ, period. Full stop. End of statement. So, Jesus plus nothing. Actually, uh, nothing more than Jesus, nothing less than Jesus. You know, some of you here may be saying, well, you know, I'm not sure if I have a relational knowledge of Jesus. I'm here. Uh, I try to do my best. I gave it the office. No, no. The knowledge of Jesus is not this Gumby-style faith, you know, that you can twist and turn in whatever way you want, and yet it's, it's still consonant with the original gift. No, it, it's the knowledge of Jesus 
as it's been received on God's terms as it falls here on the, the printed page of Scripture. Finally, the knowledge of Jesus is a powerful knowledge. Uh, take a look there at the opening words to verse 3. It speaks of his divine power. And with that phrase, Peter's clear about a couple of things. First, Jesus is God. Uh, Peter states it at the beginning of this letter here. Paul states it at the beginning of Romans. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How's that? Well, uh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus backed up his words by his action. In fact, it's really interesting if you go back and look at all the times to which Jesus refers to his coming death and resurrection, he's even as specific as to say it would occur on the third day. So Jesus put his uh, uh, money where his mouth was, as it were, and it was put on full display at the empty tomb, uh, resoundingly bespeaking his divinity. Second, the phrase divine power reveals that Jesus is interested in bringing those who don't know him, don't have a relational uh, knowledge of him, into that kind of relationship. And we know that because that term divine power was more uh, common uh, to more familiar to the ear of the pagan Greek than the New Testament Christian. Peter's writing here with the unbeliever in mind. He's using words that they would understand. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus in that way, please understand that he is inviting you to know him. He, he's calling you into a relationship with himself. And we also know this because a broader look at the scriptures reveals that's the purpose of his power is to bring us in a relationship with himself. Again, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe it? Jesus invites you to embrace it, embrace that truth as well as its power and enjoy the kind of life for which you have always longed. Well, that's the first half of Peter's opening point in this mini-sermon. It's all contained there in verse number three. God's people have everything necessary for a godly life for today in the knowledge of Jesus. But they also have received everything necessary for tomorrow in the promises of Jesus. And that's there in verse four. And notice a, a, a trio of things about these promises. First, these promises are given by Jesus. It says there in verse 4, He has granted them to us. Second, these promises are precious. They're precious. I love that word. I think of my mother's china cabinet when I think of precious because everything in there is, is precious, either because it's worth something monetarily or it's worth something sentimentally. Uh, Peter uses that word of our faith in chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Christ in verse 19. John uses that word of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Things that are invaluable, things that are sacred, things that are lofty. And as if the term precious wasn't enough to describe the promises of Christ, Peter adds the phrase very great which is the superlative form of sublimity. 
<laughs> the, the Mount Everest of guarantees. Third, notice that these promises make God's people partakers in the divine nature, which means like Jesus, in whose incorruptible divinity they now share, they have, according to the end of verse 4, escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now what that doesn't mean is that Christians are perfect. Nor does it mean that Christians who think they're perfect are perfect. But what it does mean is this. Christian who is relying upon the knowledge of Jesus for today and the promises of Jesus for tomorrow is able to do things that other people can't like authentically forgive from the heart. Live a life of genuine contentment. Grow in their ability to say no to sin. And look to the future with hope. I mean, real hope. Because like Christ, they too are incorruptible. So I mentioned at the outset of the sermon, my, my dad and, and is managing cancer now for six years or so. And um, uh, this final chapter has just come on like that. And so we're, we're sitting, this is a couple of weeks now, a couple of weeks ago, and we're sitting in the den talking, and I said, Dad... If we didn't have the promises of Jesus, this life would rot. It would. It would just rot. I mean, Paul said, if there's no empty tomb, then we above all are the most to be pitied. Right? And he agreed with that. And uh, because Jesus conquered death, saving my dad from its ultimate corruption, he was able to write uh, these words to his grandchildren just about a week or so ago. He says, uh, in response to this news, please know that I am joyful and at peace. Romans 5.3 exhorts us to take joy in our suffering because God is building patience, endurance, character, and hope, which only, which only he uh, can build through suffering. With joyful expectancy, I await meeting my Savior face to face. So that, that comes off the end of a pen of a man who has everything necessary for life and godliness now and the knowledge of Jesus and for tomorrow, which may be today, and the promises of Jesus. So, finally and, and briefly, as we touched on at the outset, uh, knowledge of this <laughs> brings in the vultures brings in the false teachers. They are greedy for God's blessing, but on their terms. And so Peter references Balaam. Remember Balaam from the Old Testament. Peter says in 2.15, he loved gain, even from wrongdoing. And so these false teachers are going to try to challenge Christ's power. They do that in chapter 2 by blaspheming the truth. Chapter 2, verse 2. That is the knowledge of Jesus 
which is the source of a godly life, right? right? That's why it's important to know the truth, to read the truth, to sit under the hearing of the truth, to prayerfully respond to the truth. People who don't know the truth run the risk of deviating from it, even if they're not aware of their deviation, and succumbing to the teaching of the false teachers and their profligate lifestyle. Uh, since they endorse passionate sensuality, we see that in 2, 6, and 7, as well as 2, 18, exotic lust, chapter 2, verse 10, compromised marriages, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, while claiming that none of these things have any bearing on belief, right? You can do all this and still believe and life's good. Okay, but what, what does it even look like? What, what are you talking about? Put some shoe leather on that. Well, um, this kind of life today looks like the pastor in suburban Chicago who published a book, even this past summer, I think it was only two months ago, entitled Good Christian Sex, colon, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, hyphen, and other things the Bible says about sex. And so in this book, the author claims that single Christians can have sex as long as it's mutually pleasurable and affirming. So do no harm, just pleasurable and affirming. And that chastity isn't about abstinence until marriage, but moderation, all things in moderation. Also looks like the growing number of pastors, even among evangelical ranks, who are advocating for what's called a third way. A third way, a way in which churches can remain congregationally united while theologically divided on the matter of same-sex relationships and behavior. And what Peter does to this kind of stuff is just rip the veil off it all in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, they promise, that is his false teachers, they promise their followers freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, the very thing that they're teaching. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So not only do these false teachers work at challenging Christ's power by undercutting his truth in chapter 2, they also challenge the uh, integrity of his promises by scoffing at them in chapter number 3. So take a look at 3.2. I've mentioned this at the outset here. Chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 2, <clears throat> where Peter writes, Remember the predictions of the holy prophets, there's the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior, there are the Gospels, through your apostles, there's the rest of the New Testament, knowing, knowing, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, which are our days, New Testament days, with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So Peter says, remember your Bible in total, because they're going to challenge what you believe. And the foundation, the contents of what you believe is to be found in the Bible. And they're going to challenge how you live, which is in accordance with the Scripture. And here's how they're going to challenge what you believe concerning the promise of a future hope. Take a look again at verse number four. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Which is what they were presumably saying to Noah, whom Peter mentions in chapter 2, verse 5. The preacher of righteousness for over a century. You know, he's hammering away on this ark and they're like, things are as they've always been, and you're preparing for rain. There's never been any rain. What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? But they hurl these abuses, Peter says, because they deliberately overlook this fact. And here's what they're overlooking. That the world which God created and judged for a time by water back in Noah's day is the same world. It's our world that he recreated and will judge for all time by fire in the future. And so sometimes you read, and, and we'll study this here in, in a few weeks, about Noah and his ark, and you think, man, what's that all about? It's just a floating craft project for Sunday school kids, you know, and something to paint on the wall of the nursery. But no, Peter says there's another fire, another flood coming, but this one is of fire. And they chip away at that, the false teachers chip away at that, And this is why Peter emphasizes the fact that God keeps his promises. And he wants you to know the one in whose name these promises are made. So he continues in 3.8. Don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day, it's, it's like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like one day. So the Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise. Some count slowness, but he's... He's patient toward you. So these people that are reviling you because eh, it's always been this way, it's actually, they're actually ones upon whom God is reigning his patience, waiting for them to respond. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief and the heavens are going to pass away. Heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Peter writes, and I think, well, he's going to tell us when. Since it's going to happen this way, here's when it's going to happen. That's not what he writes. He doesn't write when, he writes what. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and even hastening the coming day of God because of which, and here it goes again, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting. That's what we're doing. We're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's people have been given everything necessary for a godly life. Today, in the knowledge of Jesus, for tomorrow, in the promises of Jesus, and don't believe anyone, not even your own serpentine self, not any of your midnight imaginings as you lay there in the darkness, anyone who tells you otherwise. The Lord wants you to have that kind of life kind that Peter's describing here. That's why he reminds us that the Lord is patient. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so today is the day of repentance. I think all of us, uh, most all of us here, can remember where we were 15 years ago last Sunday. 
9-11. I was coming back from a breakfast out with my colleagues to our weekly morning staff meeting when we heard the news. And, uh, of course, from that point, everything became a blur, didn't it? And we gathered in the room, uh, which we were accustomed to gathering, and being briefed on everything that's happening in New York and D.C. and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And I can remember my boss. He was sitting in a wing chair that day, a floral upholstery, uh, colors that were consonant with the, with the 90s. And uh, his head went back like that after, after all had been said. And, and, and he, he said, if all of this is true, this will be bigger than Pearl Harbor. And I thought, really? And it was, wasn't it? So two years later, I'm working at Taylor University, and we're marking the second anniversary of, of that fateful day on September 10th, because uh, the 11th was not a chapel day, and so we, we gathered together. And our speaker for that day was David Beamer, who was the father of Todd Beamer, one of the heroes on flight 93 that went down over uh, rural Pennsylvania. And so Beamer, uh, I, I remember this, he, he began his talk by asking the assembled students and faculty, do, do you know what today is? Remember now, we're gathering on September 10th. Do you know what today is? It's the day before. And then he went on to talk about how his son would have been unable to do all he did on September 11th if it wasn't for who he was on September 10th. And so his, his point, the, the point that he worked at inculcating for the balance of his talk was, it's all about the day before. It's not about 9-11. It's about 9-10. And friends, according to his precious and very great promises, God has given us everything necessary to stand on the last day. But you're only going to stand then if you know him now. He's given to us everything necessary to do that and to live a godly life. But you've got to say yes got to say yes. So the question is, have you? Will you? Let's pray. Lord, as we finish on this uh, 9-11 story, and we think about that day of death and utter devastation, wouldn't it be beautiful if there were those today who by way of David Beamer's life-giving words, turned the memory of 9-11 into a memory of life. It was because of the death of his son that I came to understand what life is all about, as expressed here by Peter. Wouldn't that be beautiful? So, Father, we pray that you would direct your spirit to open eyes and, and, and soft, soften hearts. And transform lives, even now. Help people, persons in this room right now to say yes to you. Those who have never done so. And those who need to do so again. 
because they recognize just how far away they have uh, traveled away from you, but just how close you remain to them. May this be a day of new life, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.